Don't give refunds or reduce your price. Give them a credit for future work. If you're ever going to do that, say, I need you to pay me for what we've done. But if you want to keep working with us, I'm going to apply a credit to the future. Hey, everybody. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jess. And we are two internet friends exploring the intersection of independent business and rails. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the show. Today, we have a special guest. He is a Rubyist, an entrepreneur, musician, creator of Command Line Awesomeness, <laughs> author, podcaster, speaker, a redhead from Portland, Oregon. If you haven't guessed it by now, our special guest is Robbie Russell. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Robbie. No one's ever, everybody can imagine what a redhead. I've let my hair grow during the pandemic. And so I'm adjusting to this new world of having long hair since the first time since I was a teenager. So I like um, it. Get to see the curls. How is that when you were running? Is it difficult? It's actually, it is probably the most annoying part of running right now is long hair. I always wear a hat usually, or like a beanie, depending on the weather. And it keeps kind of like a sweat mechanism, I suppose. But I have a couple hats that have like this elasticity that seems to just catch my hair in a weird way. And then I'm always like tucking my hair back under my hat when I'm running and slightly annoying, to be honest. So you're a runner too, huh? So during the pandemic, I decided I read Atomic Habits, was backpacking on a trip and I was reading the book and I wasn't planning to start running or doing everything every day, but I decided I'm like, I'm going to become the kind of person that gets outside and sweats every day. I'm like, I can at least do that. I don't have to rely on because I wasn't going to the gym anymore and things like that. During, this was like in 2020 and there was a pandemic going on. So I was like, I'm just going to get out and try breaking a sweat. So I would go for a bike ride or go for a run. And I think today is around 1160 days in a row that I've done that. Primarily, most of that this year is running about 97% of the, my activities so far this year on Strava would be a run. So I'm a little bit addicted to it, I suppose, in some ways, but it's, this is part of my morning routine. I've started running a little bit more. Jeremy, I started probably like three, four weeks ago doing longer runs and walks, just taking a break from the gym. It's so hot. I've been running in the morning to get it done when it's nice and cool. I love running in the middle of the afternoon it's just great. to kill myself. So <laughs> as a ginger, I think about sunblock all the time. So there's that aspect to it of I go in the morning because I don't have to worry about the UV rays hitting me just yet. And I don't particularly do well in a lot of heat anyways. So that's part of my reason for going in the morning is I don't have to put sunblock on to get out and hopefully get before the UV starts to get into like two or three. And then I'm like, I just got to lather up <laughs> yeah. and it's a whole thing. And I only have so much budget on for sunblock. Yeah. So that's, that's my job. So for those who don't uh, know you, Robbie, would you tell us a little bit about your uh, background? Well, I am a, let's see, I'm an opportunistic person in the sense that I didn't set out any sort of career goals in my life. I wanted to be a musician. That's what I wanted to do. I was like, I'm going to be a creative musician. I'm just going to figure out how to make that work. I failed at that. So I play music and I have a band and stuff like that. And it's not how I make my money. But it's just a very elaborate hobby at this point in my life. But going back to my early era of, I've always been around computers since I was a kid. My father works in Silicon Valley. He works in hardware. And he, I was always around computers, building around computers. So I got my first computer back in like 1984, 85. And it was a hand-me-down. My dad got basically just built a new one and I got the one that I had. And so I've always been around computers. I like interacting with them. My first coding type things would be some batch files in, on my MS-DOS or something to do stuff on the command line, go figure. I didn't think that would be something that I'd be doing it 30, 40 years later, but it kind of how that happened. But I, my idea of working in software and tech meant working in, a, in Silicon Valley in a cubicle. And I just kind of like, that is not 
a career path that I want to go. A high school dropout. I painted houses for almost four years when I dropped out of high school. And I was like, I don't know what to do. I just want to go see punk shows and sell stickers and I had like a music zine. So I started learning how to do some programming, not because I wanted to get a job, because I wanted to build some websites that I could have people place like a order request on or fill out like a guest book. And like, this is all like maybe 90, 1996, 97, 98 era. So I started doing some web stuff then because I had some other project that I wanted to put on the internet and that kind of evolved over time. But that's kind of how I started getting into programming. But I thought that if I was going to be a professional programmer, it meant that I'd be working at some company like Microsoft or something, some hardware company in Silicon Valley and working in a cubicle with no windows nearby. I'm like, that doesn't seem like a super creative path for me. There wasn't this, the world that I think we all live in now or like, not that I wanted to work at home or anything, but it just, I'm like, I want to work around creative, interesting people. And I felt like that was just the office. This is what you're supposed to do. And I was kind of like, no, I'm going to push against that and be a rebel against that. And I think open source was the thing that got me interested over the following years was as I was like learning, like, oh, how do I do stuff in Linux? How do I make code changes on these websites? And so I was helping out with some like activist websites on the internet or helping like bands put up a website. I had a sticker company and I wanted to put stickers up on the internet that people could buy. And so I was like, how do I do that? I couldn't afford to pay someone to do it. So that's how I learned some of those initial building blocks to being a programmer was so I could build these websites for myself. And then I moved to Portland from, I grew up in California and I moved to Portland in the summer of 2000. And then I ended up getting a job at a company that had a cubicle <laughs> that I sat in and I helped people, you know, I was 21 years old and moved to, I'm air quoting the city and got to work at this company with about 200 people. And I was like a desktop support person because I knew how to use computers really well. And when I realized that I was getting a lot of fielding, a lot of similar questions for people, I started putting together like an intranet within the company so that there'd be some tutorials on like how to set up your out of office auto reply on the week when you're going on vacation and to not have it be a, not result in a infinite loop between you and someone else <laughs> going on vacation, because that would happen back in the day where two people's things were basically <laughs> would take down the email server over the weekend. So I used to do write up a lot of tutorials and screenshots. And so I was making some websites internally and then I'd go home and I was doing some like side projects for different activist related projects or my sticker company that I don't really sell that many stickers, but, and the, there was a department in the company that was also, was a web development team. And they saw that I was doing that and they're like, why are you doing that? And not part of our team. We want to work on our client work with us. And I was like, maybe, I guess. And they all use Microsoft.net. Uh, .NET had just come out. I went to the unveiling of .NET back in like 2001, 2002, whatever year that was, the convention center. And I was like, this is neat and all, but I like this open source stuff. So it was always learning stuff at work, building websites for customers at the company. And then at night, I'd be like, how do I do this in PHP? How do I do this in Python? How do I interact with, I'm like, I want to do is use this free stuff. And this, like the spirit of the ecosystem of open source was like, super exciting. And in my company, like there was no way that they were going to allow that to come in. They're like, no, 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 no. Like that's not safe. It's like untested. Like it's going to be super insecure. Like there's no way. And so I found ways to like sneak in some Linux into the environment. Like I managed like a DNS server at the company and things like that as well. So I was interested in playing with open source stuff and there was no way that they were going to let me use that for any of our client work. So I was there for a couple of years. And so I was a desktop support person and then I joined the web development team. I was a junior developer basically. And actually my business partner at Planner Now was a senior developer in that department. And he got stuck having to mentor me. So the story like later, years later, was it me and my other business partner no longer is with us, but 
she and I were able to convince Gary to come join us at Planet Argon maybe like six years later. I'm like, because I didn't know what I was doing with, in terms of running a company and trying to mentor a myriad of different seasoned developers at our company. So I'm like, well, he did that for me. Maybe I can have him come do that for this group of ragtag developers that I've been able to accumulate. So that's kind of how I started getting into web development, doing some software stuff. And it was always, and coincidentally, a lot of those projects were usually modifying existing projects. So it was a lot of PHP projects I would take. They're like, how do I customize this? How do I add some new modules to it? How do I change the database? How do I switch it from MySQL to Postgres because there's this other project I want to use. Um, and so it was always like tinkering like in the evenings, which is what kind of led to me eventually starting Planet Argon back in 2002, where it was like my freelancing thing. I'm like, I want to work on open source stuff and I'll do that. Like Moonlight as an open source developer, picked the company name Planet Argon because it coincidentally, which comes from a Tom Robbins book called Still Life of the Pecker. That's where Redheads came from. <laughs> it was called Planet Argon. So there's Planet Argon is literally just like this inside joke from a book. That's where the name came from. And a couple of years later, then we became an agency and stuff like that. But we can get into that. But that's kind of like my like high level overview of the my origin story, I, should, I suppose. So somewhere I, I got a good laugh out of you said you started to freelance full time to so you could work more on music. Yes, I had a band, a couple bands during that era, but I had one band and I was like, being like, this is it's going to happen. Didn't happen. But honestly, I was like, I'm going to quit my job and maybe work like half as many hours. I was like, I'm making $60 an hour as a freelance developer. How many hours a week? I, was, I think my job that I had at the time was maybe, I was probably getting paid somewhere 30, 35K a year back in like 2002, give or take. So just for some transparency, I was like, how can I kind of get similar to that as a freelancer? I thought it was attainable. So I eventually was able to quit my job and start doing that full time. So that was in 2000, like spring of 2004 is when I quit my last job to focus on Planet Argon. And there, so there was a little company and there was another company in between that one company that I mentioned that I was at, that I was like the web develop moved into the web developer team. And then I moved to another company in Portland that was like a really small team. It was maybe like four to five employees and they were all open source. So we were Python and PHP, Perl projects, but the common denominators that they were all Postgres based. And so that's when I really got like deep dived into the Postgres world, like the owner of the company wrote the O'Reilly book on Postgres. Oh, wow. So it was like, that's what everybody knew that company was for. It's like, in retrospect, it's a really interesting focus niche, I suppose. And that company is still around to this very day, still focusing on that niche that there's companies that will bring all these different types of projects and whether they're consulting on to fine tuning the Postgres queries and helping them with fine tuning the app to the servers, setting up replication, things like that but also building out applications that just happen to use Postgres as their backend, which it's such a weird paradigm shift that I think they're like how it's, now we're like focusing on like the, the frameworks and stuff and less about the, the database itself. So there's always these interesting kind of niches that kind of like evolve, I think over the, and that's happened with other tools since then as well, I suppose. Speaking of niches, when did you find that Planet Argon was gonna have this niche in Rails? maybe particularly maintaining Rails applications, hosting, and all that? So there's a couple of things there. Quick story about, and I've gone into this in some other conversations elsewhere, but how I got introduced to Ruby on Rails was maybe atypical. I applied for a job at a company called CD Baby that was based here in Portland, and the owner, Derek Sievers, people may, may or may not be familiar with Derek, he had written all the software in PHP, and he was looking for a new developer to join his team, and I did a lot of PHP work. So I interviewed there to be the the very first other developer besides him. My interview was in my living room. He like came over and ate like a whole plate of pineapple in front of me <laughs> while he interviewed me. And we had a couple of rounds of interviews. 
went out to their warehouse because they were out by the airport and got to go meet some of their employees. Eventually, I got a verbal offer for the job. And this may be like November, December of 2004, around Thanksgiving-ish time and in the U.S. And he's like, yeah, I'm going to go away for Christmas. I'm going on a ski break. I'll come back and then we'll sort out next steps. I'm like, cool. So I was going to like completely disabandon Planet Argon. I'm like, I'm going to go work for CD Baby. It's in the music world. That's super exciting. Like a lot of people that work there are musicians. And I'm like, this is going to open up opportunities for getting to meet other musicians. Like when my band finishes our album, we would have put our music on CD Baby to have them help us ship out CDs and stuff to people. So super excited about that. Anyways, this comes back from, Derek comes back from Christmas break, ski trip. And he's like, I got stuck in a blizzard, but I had this Ruby programming book and I want to rewrite everything in Ruby. And there's this thing called Rails. If you can pick it up, I'll hire you. But I already found someone, this guy named Jeremy, who lives in San Diego, that does, I'm moving him to Portland and we're going to do everything in Rails. And then if you can pick it up in a few months, I'll hire you. So that's how I got introduced to Ruby on Rails outside of, I had seen DHH's video and like looked at it, but I hadn't done a lot with it at that point. And I was like, okay, it's not what we discussed, but this looks interesting. And I would really like to work with Derek at CD Baby. So I started diving into it, started blogging when I was, because there wasn't really a lot of people blogging about it at the time. So I was like, I'm just going to learn this and I'm going to document my progress to show Derek I'm picking this stuff up so that he will hopefully hire me and I'll be developer number three at CD Baby. What made you think to do that, to blog it? So they started it, very intentionally started a new blog for that. And I had some other blog type things. Some of it maybe was like too personal and things like that as well. And I was like, I think there wasn't really many people writing about it. And there wasn't a lot of good documentation available. So I was like, as I searched things, I was kind of like, I might as well just share what I'm doing with other people. So I'll just do this under the umbrella of Robbie on Rails. It's a fun play on the word. I'm like, it's easy enough to... So I feel like that, I just got into this habit. I'm like, didn't know how to do something. I might as well share it. Maybe contribute something back to Rails. Like I had a handful of code contributions to Ruby on Rails early on. Some of those were documentations, some database things that Rails was trying to be database agnostic, but there were things you could do in MySQL that you couldn't do in Postgres and vice versa. And so I was like helping, I would discover bugs because I was a Postgres person that didn't work, that weren't replicated in MySQL. So I was just like, I might as well share what I'm doing. And then the other part of it, so I started blogging because it just felt like it was the thing to do because I learned from other people's blogs and information on the internet, and I might as well just pay that forward. And then we started offering hosting for Ruby on Rails developers because nobody was doing it. And I'm like, where am I going to... I mean, as a freelancer, I was doing... I was offering PHP and Postgres ho shared hosting for at least about a year and a half prior to getting into Ruby on Rails. And so I had customers built up already in that realm because I figured out how to like set that up and make it cost effective because not everybody could afford, say, a $100 a month server rental from Server Beach. But if I could split that between 20 people... And I knew how to manage the servers. I would just like, here, you can use the brand new version of PHP. Make PHP 5 may have been about out around then. And you couldn't find it anywhere. I'm like, you can use the newest version of Postgres and the newest versions of PHP. Here's a developer-friendly environment. It was clunky, but worked for developers. And so I was like, I just basically applied that same kind of approach to Ruby on Rails. I'm like, I'm going to start offering hosting to Rails developers because not everybody can afford to go buy a server or rent a server every month. And so if you wanted to experiment or spin up your first... Ruby on Rails base blog or some piece of hobby project that you're working on, that would be useful. So the tactic there was, I thought, if I get a bunch of people using hosting and I was charging $12 to $100 a month, depending on the amount, probably, within like maybe a year and a half, I had almost 1,000 developers using it. Not really making much money. It was basically barely paying for itself. And when we hired sysadmin to manage that stuff, the biggest we ever got, we had two sysadmins managing our servers in a co-location 
it barely paid for itself. But the thought was, this is a marketing angle that I'm going to get all these developers to know about Planet Oregon. And when they abandon like their client projects, the clients that they've helped set up a project with, these all these freelance developers, maybe that company that paid the developer will be like, hey, come to us and be like, hey, do you know anyone? We lost our developer. They're no longer available. Do you know someone? And I'd be like, yes, us. We'll take over the development of your project. You don't even have to move the hosting. Yeah, you don't have to move it. We can handle it. We Code's all here. Let's do this. Did that work? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think maybe, I'd say about a thousand customers. Out of that, maybe two or three projects maybe came our way because of that. We got a lot of referrals from those developers, but we never like inherited a lot of those projects. So yeah, we did that for a handful of years. We basically sold off that part of the business in like middle of 2009 to another company called Blue Box. A couple of years later, they got acquired by IBM and they were doing way more sophisticated stuff than we were. So I was like, I was happy to be done with that particular experiment, I should say, because it was a lot of going down to the co-location and fixing servers. And yeah, I bet. It's kind of funny that IBM bought a company called Blue Box. It's true. Yeah. IBM Blue. It, it happens. Can we maybe step back and look at the big, I mean, Planet Argon has been around for a long time. One of the longest running Rails agencies, if not the longest, I don't know what the longest would be, but 21 years. You've been just had your 21st anniversary. Congratulations on that, by the way. Thanks. Can we talk through the stages of Planet Argon from you as a sole proprietor all the way up till now and maybe the major inflection points along that journey? Yes. So I want to be one, one important detail is it's never been just me. And when Planet Argon first started to do that, so that whole era was doing the moonlighting, my significant other at the time was a designer. And so she would do design and she was working on a website design for people. And, and then some projects I would do development on. And so Planet Oregon was my thing. She had like a different company name for her design stuff. And so kind of like she was there when it formed, but you know, I had my projects and sometimes we needed design and for some projects. And so she would help that out, help out with that. And sometimes I could do some of that myself. So there was, she was always around in that capacity. So it was a handful of projects in those first few years where it was just me. So it was a sole proprietor thing and doing freelancing. And then I was able to quit my job and do that full time. She still had like a job that she was doing. So she didn't, I think, quit her job until probably late 2005 when we started hiring people. So the kind of like inflection point of the first few years where I was doing moonlighting and then 2004 when I quit my job and I'm like, I'm just going to do this full time. That was primarily me trying to find work, scouring Craigslist for job ads or it's into like, yeah, I'll do these like short-term projects with PHP or things like that for different companies. A lot of get in and get out things. And then so in 2005, so that back to the story about the CD baby thing, I started blogging and then I got a book deal later that year. That book never was never finished being published. And that's a whole story in and of itself. But I had a book deal and I was working on that. But the inflection point around that time was maybe four or five months into being really immersed in this rail space and blogging a lot. The nature of my drastically changed where I started getting phone calls. People like, hey, can you work on this project for me? So lead gen was just like, it was just people were contacting us. Either they were hiring us or doing the hosting stuff. So that's sort of bringing a little bit of revenue in. And then at the same time, and then people were like, oh, we have this new startup project or we have this freelancer built something. Can you take it over for us? So I was able to just start winning more work than I could kind of do on my own. And so I was like, all right, I'm getting a little spread thin. I'm trying to write this book. I'm hanging out at a coffee shop writing for a couple hours a day and working on these side projects. It wasn't really a side project, but I was working on these like small projects for different companies. And then maybe about six months into it, I get a, I did call, speak with Derek from CD Baby. And he's like, looks like you're into this world. Like, are you still interested? I'm like, I don't know. 
because I started getting like legitimate job offers, like hey, come work for me. So it'd be like, leave this Planet Argon thing, come work for my company. And there was a couple of companies that offered me jobs, some large companies, but one of those companies, like a really large search engine company in California. And that meant that I'd be working in a cubicle. And I'm like, I don't want to go back to California and do that. So like that wasn't really in the cards. So it was kind of like in this weird area of like, I don't know what I'm going to do. Should I go take a job somewhere else? There was another hosting company that was starting to focus a lot on Ruby on Rails. And they, were, they wanted to basically like come in, you're doing a lot of this, like we'd be a great hire because you could do a lot of that, help us with the content marketing and you're blogging about this stuff and you'd bring your customers with you as well. And he's like, that they were excited about. I gave them a verbal and then over the weekend changed my mind. I was like, nope, I think I've never had this scenario where like work was kind of showing up on my door and I was turning away projects. Like that had never happened. So at that point, I was like, I started thinking like, well, some of these projects are bigger than I can do by myself. Who do I know that could work on these projects with me? And so some of those were maybe some customers. We had like IRC channels for our customers. So I knew a few of the people that were playing with Ruby on Rails. And so there was like one guy named Jeremy who lived in Ohio. And so this is maybe like late summer, early fall of 2005. And we had this really large project come our way. And we would have been working on a project for Nike, which is a big company. You may have heard of them and they're based in, in Portland, Oregon area. And through a design agency was looking to help have us help them with a big project for the Winter Olympics. And I was like, this is too big. I can build this by myself. Jeremy, you seem excited about Portland. Do you want to come out? And like, and I started going to the Ruby meetups in town. And I was like, I just started like talking to people. and like, because we had like a Portland Ruby user group. And so I started asking people, I'm like, do you want to help me with this project and come in as a contractor? Maybe we'll make this an employment thing. I don't really know because it was a sole proprietor technically on the you know, our business entity level. And then another startup approaches with another big project that run the same time. And I was like, all right, these are two huge projects. Like at the time, huge projects was like 60 to $100,000 budgets for me. And I was like, wow, like I'm just going to bring in some people that know Ruby and Rails locally. And I moved the guy from Jeremy out to Portland, our very first hire. He lived in our spare bedroom for a couple months until he found his own place. We worked in my attic office space and there was like eight of us within a few weeks working on these projects. I didn't know. So it was more of a things showed up and we're like, what's the worst that could happen? We have to go back and work for myself. I was already doing that. Like I just asked these people to go home. So that's kind of how it, it was not a planned thing. It just kind of happened. So I was like, well, why not try it? We can just fall back to what we were doing already. So there was no risk. I didn't have any kids. My rent was pretty affordable. We were working out of our attic. We did that for a few months. And then we got an office space. We're like, let's do this. So January 1st, 2006, we became an LLC. And there was, most of those people became employees. And we're like, all right, let's just see how far this goes. So that was, it's, it's still going since then. So that's how that happened. But it was literally just some projects that popped up. You went from like solo freelance to like working with, what'd you say, eight plus people within just a couple of months? 12 people by the time we had the office. So within a couple of months. And you really didn't have any consulting experience, right? Besides your freelance. Like you didn't work at a consultancy. The previous company was tech that I worked okay. at was a consultancy okay. that did the Postgres stuff. So, but I was there for like a year and a half or so. So I saw a little bit of working. But was there any, any fear or hesitancy just for taking on that many projects? Yeah, totally. I cried out of fear that the developer, the Jeremy, when we flew him from Ohio to Portland, like the night before he was going to come out, and I was like, what am I doing? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I might not be good at this. This is all going to blow up. I'm going to ruin this person's life somehow. I don't know what I mean. Like, it was just giving them a great opportunity. And they've gone on to do some really amazing things since then. So I was ignorant enough to think that why not me? And I think that was a key thing. 
I don't know that how I would approach that scenario now. I think I know too much about what could potentially happen when it comes to throwing a bunch of people in the same room together and think it's just going to magically work out. Like it doesn't like this. There's a lot of things you just have to learn. And like, I thought you just put a bunch of cool, smart, interesting people in the same room. Yeah, <laughs> It's going to be magic. Hire smarter people, right? And then it's not always so rosy. So there's been you know, a lot of heartbreak over the years and stuff like that as well. But that's business though. Yeah, right? it was, it's this, a little messy. There was a little, yeah, it, it is. And so, but customer service and responding to people. So I mentioned I painted a house. It took maybe about five years ago, I had a friend point this out. They're like, since you were 16, 17, when you started painting houses, you've been working on projects with timelines, budgets, things like that, and having to like respond to like agitated customers or redo work or thinking about your prep work. A lot of my projects and my other jobs as well, I remember because my first job at that, or that company when I moved in Portland that I was doing the tech support at was desktop support. So I was helping people. And so I would go to their desk and help them figure, show them how to do something and realize I could you had to kind of talk to them in a certain way. You can like talk down to them or talk too much about the technical things. You had to like meet them where they're at. And so I kind of learned to think I was awarded out of that because we had to hire a bunch of people. I was like rookie of the year. I was seen as a very, very helpful person. And then, so I think when I started doing that freelance stuff, I was like, people just saw one, actually one of my very first paying client was an employee of that company who had, I don't know if he got laid off or quit his job to start his own consulting business and wanted to put together a website with the CMS. And so was kind of like, he saw me as a helpful resource. And so there's this, I think I just kind of built up a little bit of like, I can respond and not get upset when people are frustrated about something that may or may be outside of my control and help them find a path forward. It may not be the ideal scenario every time, but at least we can meet here and you can continue on with your job or I can show them how to take care of this stuff themselves. So that was always a little bit of like, I guess in the consulting, I, I don't know where that skill bought up, but it came from over the years. Like I've had to learn a lot about like negotiating and such like that over the years. So not taking this personal when you're having a negotiation with a client is like, or you deal with like trying to get paid or dealing with lawyers, going back and forth over a contract. There's a lot of things you have to learn over the years that not to take it so personal and be like, okay, where are we, where are we able to trying to get to here? And so that I kind of learned that on the job over the years, but. Was there a, a person or like a group of people, mastermind group or something where you were collaborating with like, man, how much should we charge these people? Or like, how long is this project going to take? No. It's interesting. The previous company that I worked at, we built time and materials and that sometimes it resulted in, I saw the consequence of that where there were overheard plenty of conversations where it took X to get something done and the client didn't know it took that long until they got the bill. And then they had to be, my boss at the time would be on the receiving end of having to explain why something took so long or was so expensive to get done. And then, then they had to negotiate somewhere where they're actually going to get paid. And I always thought like, why didn't we talk more with them about what it might take to do this, to give them some range. And then also hearing the very important takeaway from this that I've always tried to be very mindful is like, how do you not surprise someone that you're working with? Like, and I think sometimes developers were problem solvers. And so we'll kind of bury our head into a problem. And then like, like this, the client asked for X, we need to deliver that to what they're looking for. Maybe we give them some recommendations on the way and it'll just cost whatever it takes to get done. But sometimes you end up, having a conversation with your client and they're like, well, if I had known it would take that, I never would have asked for this because it's actually not that valuable. I didn't need to spend $10,000 on those set of features when I thought it was going to be like half a day thing. If I knew it was going to take a week or two, no way I would have ever asked for that. Like, I can live with what we have right now. And so that was something that I kind of needed to learn and bake into our process. So when we talk with clients about estimates, like here's what we're talking about. Here's like some X to Y ranges. 
And we'll keep you regularly updated on our progress. We'll track our time and show you how we're always been very transparent about that. And so we can reduce the surprise scenario. Not that that never happens. There's still surprises that it happens internally. If someone on a development team might go take a little longer than we thought, and we have to make a decision like, well, do we want to even burden the client with knowing that it took the long or we, do we think, I mean, we went down a rabbit hole. Let's not even bother the client. We'll just reapply some budget. That's another tactic I just wanted to point out is don't give refunds or reduce your price. Give them a credit for future work. If there's one takeaway, if like if you're ever going to do that, say, I need you to pay me for what we've done because I got to pay my team's bills and everything. But if you want to keep working with us, I'm going to give you $3,000 towards something you can do over the next month or two. Brings back more work. It shows that you're thinking about the long-term picture. And if the client's not willing to do that, then I can think of kind of whether or not they want to continue working with you anyway. So they want to save money anyways. Right. Yeah, that's great. Whatever. Like, so there's some free advice. So just apply a credit to the future. And it's only going to be used then if you can get away with that. Thinking past the, you've got 12 developers or so, you, you're moving along from there. Are there other major inflection points for the organization or times where you had to change maybe your role? Yeah, I mentioned that we brought in my previous, like the senior developer to come work with us and thinking like they're going to be great at managing a team of developers and I wouldn't need to directly do that. Like I was very conflict avoidant and I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing. And these you know, people were mostly, older. I mean, this, again, this is all, this all happened. I started hiring people when I was like 24. So like, I didn't have a lot of life skills in general, emotional intelligence to any degree. And I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. Always been very upfront about that. Like, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, but we'll figure it out. He turned out to not be great at that either. Or not enjoy it so much, I should say, be more clear. So that was a thing. And so eventually I needed to be like, okay, I need to step into this role and directly manage people. But how can I get away from thinking about the day-to-day running of the business and things like that? And so there was a couple points where I would come in and be like the engineering manager for a while and be much more involved in the projects. There was also a time in 2008, we scaled down to five people. There was this economy thing that happened. Some people may or may not be able to remember that. I don't know that we actually had to lay off more than one person, but a lot of people left that year. And a lot of those people moved down to San Francisco to go start working at some hip new startups and have done really well for themselves. And so, because a lot of those early Ruby people like went on to work at GitHub and like when our office admin was like the first employee that I get up. That's cool. That was not a developer and more of an operational role. So that, and one of the other developers, like they, people went to Engineer and a couple other companies, like the person that used to be our sysadmin went to go work at GitHub and help them with their enterprise sales, like being a technical salesperson. So there was an inflection point of being like, I think Planet Oregon might just be a stepping stone for people. How do I feel about that? Because it was hard not to look back at some of those things and be like, did I miss out on something? I knew all these people were starting to get up. I was friends with these people. They would have hired me if I'd said, hey, I'm coming down. So anyways, it was just more of like this kind of like, well, but I actually really like working on other people's projects. And so the idea of working at a startup like never really resonated with me because I was like, I don't want to just, I always liked the variety of projects. And so kind of speaking to like, when Oregon's focus became work, those first few projects were brand new Greenfield projects. And for a number of years, most of our projects were Greenfield projects. So how do we begin into this maintaining state of working on software projects? There's a little bit of two parts to that. We start getting more phone calls for people saying, hey, we have this app that already was built a couple of years ago and the developer's no longer around. Can you pick it up for us? And be like, yeah, sure. It's, you know, Rails is only a couple of years old and like we can work on that. And 
we know where just where to host it and we can get this all set up for you. Sure. But there was this point where we were down to five people. We had a handful of clients. It was like, may have been the most profitable era. We weren't making, paying ourselves a ton, but profit margin wise was like really, really good. But taking vacation was difficult. We were pretty highly involved with their, like our relationships with our clients were really tight and we were like extension of their team. And so it was just like taking time away for more than a week was really challenging. And then we had a client ask us like, hey, are you sure you don't want to grow a little bit? Because we'd love to send you more work so we can speed up some of these things. But there are options were either to hire another team and in parallel to us or let us have us do it, but know it's going to take us longer before we can get it. And so it took us a little while to be like, well, maybe we can't, we don't know how to run a business with larger amounts of people. But again, we went from two to 12 people in like a couple months. And so now we're five. We're like, I think it took us like two or three years to get back up to like into the 12 to 15 people. So we slowly added new people and we're like, okay, how do we do this? Let's try it again, but let's just pace it out. And maybe we could have grown quicker if we had been more aggressive during that period of time. But it was something that we were like, I don't think we just want to like throw a bunch of people at the wall again and hope it's going to, because we knew that that didn't work last time. So like, let's just slowly build. So my role during that era, when I was doing a lot of business development, I was doing a lot of coding. And then I was able to bring in some new people and let them kind of take the lead on some projects. And I could kind of focus a little bit more as being like the manager of the developers and still continue working on blogging and other projects that I was working on. Then I feel like, how do I take vacation? But then I also was very cognizant of like, how can every role within the company take vacations without us feeling like everything comes? So process became a very big thing for the next several years. Like how do we systematize our organization so that we understand the roles where everybody's fitting into the certain things and knowing that if someone's away for a period of time, who's going to step in and what is expected of that role? How can someone else follow some checklists of things so that we can do those things? That was a very important part, I think, is for maturing as a company. So it didn't feel like we were a wingy anymore. And so, and we've been able to kind of lean on a lot of that work since then. And so that was maybe 2009, 2010, when we started implementing all of that. And we still lean on a lot of that stuff. It's kind of iterates and we redo things every couple of years and stuff like that to make it feel fresh with new people. People are always thinking they're inventing some new pattern or something. And I just learned to shut my mouth and be like, yeah, we did that 12 years ago. It didn't work then. Doesn't mean it won't work now. It's another important thing to, to learn is that like, just because I tried it doesn't mean someone else can't try it and it will not, might be successful for them and they're going to see it through or something. So I think maybe that kind of speaks to that area of time. It's interesting that that client came to you and said, hey, what would you think about you growing instead of them doing that? Do you find that clients are often that candid with you or was that just kind of a special case where you had that kind of relationship? There have been a handful of clients that you, when you work with them for a few years and you understand where they're coming at for their career and where their goals are, you can kind of align that in an interesting way because they got to be seen as being good stewards of budget, their resources, good decision-making skills, because that will reflect on how they're going to move up or remain in their role. The scariest thing that happens with client relationship is when that person leaves and someone comes in to fill the void. We basically take the tactic now that if that one of those key stakeholders leaves, we have to assume that this project will end in the next three to six months. What can we do to avoid that? And what can we do ahead of time to prepare proactively avoid that as well? But there's always going to be a changing of guard and people come in and they want to change things up. Sometimes preferred vendors come along and sometimes they get kicked to the curb pretty quickly. And so we've lost a lot of projects that way over the years. But we've had a few clients that persist and or they've gone on to other companies and they bring us along for the ride. And that could be a really helpful way to kind of establish that as well. And so that client that 
had asked us if we were going to grow or not because they were needing to get things more things done and they were owned by a larger company that was like trying to like why don't we just do this ourselves internally and they're like well because internally everything takes longer your team is like it's like a three to six month backlog before you can even look at our project and so like we've been like a secret weapon for a lot of large companies over the years like nike is one of those companies that we've worked with for a long time and they'll We've had to kind of sever relations at times because they have to align with some sort of tech stack rule that they put inside internally that we don't have any say in. But we've sometimes are used as like a secret weapon to get something done quicker, which is just kind of like the bureaucracy of large companies that happens. But that company that asked us if we were going to grow, they're also the ones that asked us like, hey, would you be open to changing your building model rather than having a statement of work for every body of projects? We used to build, basically work on estimates and we used to work in an iteration format where we would come up with some X to Y ranges and like, here's the price for this next two to three week block of work. It's with a not to exceed amount. And that usually felt like a pretty healthy way for us to win those projects because a lot of startups were nervous about time and materials. Here's our hourly rate, just keep charging you until it's done. They want to know that we're kind of invested in like keeping the cost down as much as possible and not just hopefully nickel and diming them. But we had a client say, you know what? Every one of those contracts takes me several people to get signed and approved on. And 80% of the time, the requirements change and nobody really wants to deal with change requests. And so they're like, don't bother with it, but like, don't worry about coming up with the change requests because no one's going to audit this in the near future. But we've also been on the receiving end of when that person leaves and then mm-hmm. someone comes in and audits everything. And you're like eight months and like, well, you've been paying your invoices. The work's been done, but like, well, it doesn't match the original estimates, the projects that you said you were going to deliver. Well, yeah, because we changed the plans with your predecessor. Anyways. But we had a client come to us and say, hey, it would be really great if you could just give me a budget every month that I can use at my discretion to say, here's our annual contract for a retainer where they can then prioritize what they want to do with the retainer each month. And if anything larger than that, then we would go through our normal statement of work process. But we have one SOW that cover the year and we'd have a budget that we try to work within. Basically time and materials, but there was a... They were the ones that asked for it. And we're like, you'd be able to sign that? And we can just know that you're going to bring us at least 80 hours a month for the next year? Cool. That's like 10 to 15 less SOWs we need to sign. That many less invoice processing. We'll just send out invoices on the 20th every month for next month. And hopefully it gets paid quick enough that maintain our cash flow. That's like now 90% of our work is retainer based because that one client pitched that to us. And we're like, oh, that's a way easier concept to wrap your head around. Lawyers do it. Why can't we? It also has its downsides. I can touch on that if you're curious, but yeah. I am curious. I mean, that's what I tend to advocate or prefer myself. I say about 90% of the work that we have planned for is based off of retainers. And, but we have projects that we work on as well. And we'll have like larger sprint projects and things. And those will happen in parallel to, so we'll have people taking care of day-to-day maintenance type tasks, bug fixes, small little feature updates and stuff like that. But if you're going to work on a larger collection of things will still give you an X to Y range and do those types of projects. And that's where we make, I think, a slightly better margin in some ways. And clients see quicker value because you're not spreading things out as long over several months. Like, you're like, well, we hit our retainer level. And some clients are like, well, they got that contract agreed to and they can't necessarily go over that budget without getting some approval somewhere. So they usually be like, let's, we'll just continue that work next month. We'll just kind of use the hours and kind of over a period of time. And the downside I would say to retainers over, because when you have those clients for several years is that the value that you provide 
tends to get a little squishier in some ways. Like, well, what are you doing exactly? Like someone else comes in and be like, what are you working on? Like, why are you always fixing bugs or things like, why haven't we got to these larger projects? Because very reactive type work in the sense that clients are putting requests and then because you can't probably fit a lot of large upgrades in those. And so you might ask, so like, we need to do a Ruby on Rails upgrade. Most of the projects that come to us need a Ruby on Rails upgrade like right away. And I have a strong opinion that that's the worst project you should do first, in my opinion. But that realm of like over time, you'll get into a rhythm with a client where everything just kind of slows down and, and then people change on your team. And you're maybe it's different for you being more in, on the independent level as freelancers or independent contractors, however you're working, I don't have a, a lot of knowledge of that, but that is like an angle where you know, we have turnover on our end as well. So there's a little bit of like ramp up time, people coming into projects and we try to offset that for our clients so that they're not like having to pay the full cost of like deboarding and onboarding a new developer. That's part of the value that we're bringing there. But when you have a client for eight to 10 years, which we do, we've got a number of them. I don't feel like they see the same sort of value and they're harder to sell on larger projects now than they were the first few years when they really wanted to get a lot of things done. And so there's almost like this kind of weird thing about at odds of like, we're as developers, maybe a little risk averse. So we bring on these kind of safe projects for us where we're like, we're, we've agreed that you have a budget and I'm going to give you my time or our time and you're safe as long as they pay your bill. Whereas if you work on some big set of projects or new features and a different sort of statement of work type of contract, there's a lot more at risk and your margins on those different types of projects can drastically vary as well. And then, whereas I think the highest, if you want to think about profitability, you either need to look at like reducing your internal costs and efficiencies, but you can only go so low on your hourly rates, what you're paying your people. We can't keep raising our hourly rates and stay competitive. I feel like we've kind of hit a ceiling there as an industry probably about a decade ago, and it's barely moved a little bit since then. And that's, tough because we're basically just now competing with people across the world and and that's a whole thing and so hourly rates are complicated so we try to look for different ways to find other types of services that you can offer to clients that have a higher margin for you because you can maybe there's a benefit to you doing it quicker than if you were just to charge your time for it so if you're just charging your time then you're always thinking about how much time do we have available and you can't really think about how do we price the client price the project in a way that allows you to have a little bit more upside profit ranges in that realm. So that gets into this gooey aspect of software development services that I, our industry is seen as, is if a client comes to you and is like, what's your hourly rate? Like, that's a horrible first question to have. And you're like, well, that's the only thing you're going to judge us on. And so then you're like, well, what's your niche? What do you have a lot of experience doing? Why are you three times more per hour than the company that we can hire in Eastern Europe? And I can't answer that question with like, we're three times faster. We're three times better. That's not honest. So... We're local. I don't know if that matters as much anymore. So it's a tricky thing to navigate. Do you think in these long-term relationships that like the value that clients are getting, it's their understanding of that value is, gets lost? Is that where like if you're pricing on the project, there's a lot of alignment right when they bring you an idea. We need this built. And it's really clear what the value is to them at that point. But then over this long tail of long-term app maintenance, that value, they, they sort of lose what that, that means. We're usually coming in at a point when they're at some sort of inflection point. Something bad happened, something undesirable happened. We don't know. Or maybe something great happened and they lost a really great developer and they're happy for them, but they're like, we need to find someone else to take care of this. So you're solving, like 
really good at onboarding projects. We've done it so many times. We know how to come in. We know how to keep clients filling in the loop and hold their hand through the process and highlight our, we've got a very thorough onboarding process and how we celebrate our victories along the way with our new clients. Fast forward five, 10 years, a lot of times clients are just, they are comfortable with the relationship that they're not really holding you to the sort of level that they probably should be holding you to. It's like a safe thing at that point. They don't want to break anything. They don't want to cause any problems. They don't want you to get scared and leave them because they remember that scary time that they had prior to finding you. So they feel safe. And so I think when they feel safe, they're not going to move unless there's something bad happens. And so if you have clients that are leaving and there's no exit point until they leave their role, the company folds or the app needs to be sunset. It's like one of those things is going to happen at some point or they want to bring the project back in-house or whatever, or they're, they're going to move it to another company in Eastern Europe because we think we want to try that now. But we know you're there if we need to come back to you at some point. They're not really reevaluating you in, a whole, in the same way that I think they do the first three to six months when you start. And so when they start doing that, you're always thinking about the next new projects and what are you going to do better with those projects? Because if your attention on those older projects starts to diminish and you have to definitely work on your account management skills, and I don't know many different projects you can, we usually try to have 10 to 15 clients in parallel that we're working with. Anything more than that, then we don't feel like we're giving them a lot of time and then it just doesn't tend to scale very well. There's times that we need to fire the clients too, because we're like, we don't think we can continue growing with this project. They become complacent. They're slow to respond to things. So you know, here's a different path you might want to consider. So I think having client turnover is a really healthy thing. It's important because every time you get a new client, you get to kind of reinvent yourself with that new client a little bit. And you can be like, this is our specialty. This is what we're doing now. And like, you're our guinea pig, whether they know that or not. Like, you can do that. And you might end up, you have these different relationships happening in parallel that are still doing the old way of how you did some stuff and you have some new ways and you're hoping the, never, the two never talk to each other and like share their <laughs> secrets. But you always want to try to do what you're doing with the new clients, with the old clients. And the old clients aren't super excited about like disrupting everything necessarily either. So it's a whole tricky thing, but that is like a, a thing about the consulting world and you do get to treat every new client as a new opportunity to experiment with a different framing of how you pitch yourself. You have to have consistent onboarding process. You need to be very thoughtful about that. But some of that, you can kind of fake it a little bit until you make it and test things out, which is, I think is an important thing. Like, yeah, we can figure that out. We'll do this with you. And maybe this will become a whole new revenue stream for us in the future. Or maybe we only get one or two clients that take advantage of this and then we try something different. So... Robbie, I feel like when I've looked over your bio and your profile, you fit on the cutting edge or leading edge of a lot of these technologies that have come up over the years. Like we talked earlier about blogging and how like if you were good at blogging and getting your name out there, you were like doing some really good marketing back in those days. But then I saw you getting into Rails very early on, Postgres very early on, ZSH conferences, doing the Rails hosting. What do you think led to that? And, oh, and I was thinking, you're probably one of those guys who bought like a couple thousand Bitcoin back in 2010 before it was cool. But anyway, just like being on the cutting edge of stuff like that and recognizing trends. Why do you think that is? What are you interested in now? Like what is some of those things? That is such a interesting framing around how I am perceived <laughs> externally, I suppose, because I don't feel that way about myself at all. I, as I said earlier, I was pushed into the Ruby and Rails world so I can get a job. I wanted to work with open source stuff. And I was always like playing around with all these different tools and stuff like that. I, I didn't start using PHP when it was a brand new thing, but I wanted to use PHP 5 because it was a new thing. And I'm like, ooh, it's got object-oriented 
it's got objects now. And like, I'm pretty sure that was when they introduced objects into PHP. So in a weird way, I don't know that I have been. I was opportunistic in the sense that like, I wanted to use the new things at that point in time because it was new and exciting to me or I thought I'd get this job at CD Baby. So I dive into Ruby and Rails. And I actually, honestly, like really enjoyed it, like really quickly. I'm like, this resonates with me. I never went through like a proper coding school. I didn't go to college to like learn to be a programmer. So my understanding of being a software developer was very much looking at some examples in like a learn PHP in 24 hours book or something. And like, I can't read programming books. Like they don't, it doesn't work for me. I, I think I have just, I might have undiagnosed dyslexia. It's hard for me to like follow a lot of that type of literature and, and along as well. All that to say is I wanted to play with these new technologies, a few new technologies at one point in time. And I knew enough about the operating system and the Linux ecosystem that I could figure out how to like do the shared hosting. And I was really good at debugging things. Like that was like my super skill was like figuring it out. And I think that's like resonated over the years. Is like, this goes back to one of my first jobs when I was 20 years that I shared earlier was like, was helping people fix problems, debugging things. What's the underlying source? Why is a email server running at a disk space? Digging into things. And like, I think that's my super skill is I can debug things. Ruby on Rails is like super exciting. I had to work on a bunch of new projects during that era. A lot of those projects failed. Like those businesses failed. That wasn't interesting to me. And I was like, I don't want to work on projects that are, someone works on a startup project and it goes out of business in a few years. In terms of over the years, like ZSH, all of these things were just like, it was the community where we're using these things. It was a very early adopter of Git. And Plan Argon was on the homepage of GitHub because we're one of the companies that started using it early. We had a contest at Blue Ridge Ruby about who had the oldest GitHub username. Do you know when yours was created? I have to go look, but I know I'm like in the first 50 to 70 people probably. It was way before 2008. I think that was the <laughs> Yes. Winner. There was a community and maybe some people here, maybe, I don't know if you were either of you were around back then. Most of our social networking back then was on IRC. And we had a private... Slack channel called Caboose, and it was a group of people. Those were all people that went on to form, start Shopify, GitHub, Basecamp. But there was a core group of us that were there. There's a photo of us from the very first RailsConf in Chicago with most of us there that we got a big photo of, maybe 50, 60 people probably. A lot of those companies started from that core group of people. So those are the people that was sharing like their Z shell configurations. We had a thing called Pacey back in the day, and it was like some examples of different things. So, oh, my Z shell was a thing that came out of me trying to make sense of my Z-shell configuration that was a bunch of copy pasting from all these things. And I was like, I wanted my coworkers to use it, but they didn't want to use it because they didn't understand what it did. And I was like, I don't care what this all does. I just know that it makes it look like this and this is how it works. So I documented it, threw it in a GitHub repository and put a readme together. Then they used it. And I was like, oh, I won. Victory. Nice. <laughs> and it was just me trying to make sense of what this configuration did and became this whole thing. And now I sell stickers. So it all comes full circle. And now I sell stickers because of open source project that I created once upon a time, which is very much a community thing. I created it, but it was more of like, I curated a bunch of stuff and shared that. That was a more, I say creator, but I think curator is probably a better word for OMAZ shells, inception. So I don't know that it was like, I was in you know, the blogging thing. I was just very comfortable writing. I had like a zine in the late nineties. I was always comfortable sharing what I was doing. So I think that part of like, a lot of people don't understand, like, how could you just be public? My dad was always really concerned that like, why are you putting your real name on this stuff? Like, this is really bad for your career. One day this is going to haunt you. And in retrospect, I'm like, no, no, no. Like that made my career that I was so transparent. I was just like Robbie on Rails. Like there's blog posts on there that I am not a proud of writing. And 
I mean, I haven't gotten deleted them or anything. It's just, it's out there. It's in the archives. Anyways, but I was just sharing what I was learning as I was going, because mostly I just wanted to capture what I was learning for myself. And there's that story of you ever search for something and then of course your own blog post pops up and you're like, oh, right. I did this like a year ago. Okay. Thank you, Pastor Ravi, for helping me today. So I think part of planning on success is that I was always trying to be helpful for myself, but also the peers by being one of the first companies to offer hosting for developers. So almost you said was a tool for developers. It was like just sharing with the peers. And I think that is what tends to help people make something they can take that opportunity to do something with or not. That's, you don't have to do that. But I do think that is an angle. Like the, my podcast is for my peers and maybe that'll bring more work to Planet Aragon. Maybe it won't. I don't think I think about those things as super intentional. Like if I do this, I'm going to get more clients. It's just like, I should probably share what I'm learning when I'm learning it. And there's some people that are doing that way better than I did. And I'm like a little envious. I'm like, wow, how do they have all this time to do that? Should I be doing that as well? But I'm like, I'm glad that there's people doing that. That's cool. So follow interesting things and be helpful. Yeah, I like that. Robert, you are stretching the limits of our podcasting abilities today because you have just done so much that it's really a challenge to pack it into our episode. Maybe to come back sometime if, if it would be helpful. But I have a question for you and I don't want to be mindful of how much time we have left, but Something that I was thinking about preparing for this conversation was the realm of the indie developer. And my understanding is you both kind of work for yourselves. Yeah. It's hard for me to wrap my head around that because I've not, outside of that brief period where I was like, I had a designer that I collaborated with, I've always had people around that I was collaborating on projects with. And like all of my personal and professional projects tend to have other people involved that I'm working on a project together with. And so in some ways I've always been like, I don't understand your realm. What is it about your distrust of other people? <laughs> I'm joking, but like, but why are you control freaks and was like, want to like own the whole thing yourself? Or do you actually have aspirations of making that transition? Like, and eventually I'm going to bring other people. I don't know that I would say that becoming a freelancer and joining an agency is like graduating. It's the same as like individual contributor becoming a manager one day. And you're like, what the hell did I do to myself? And it's a different skill set. I think about this a lot. It is very apparent to me through my family members, my wife and my kids in particular, that I often do things on my own and choose to do projects by myself, work on things on my own, just try to control everything. So that is a part of me that I don't like, but it has been sort of a strength that I've leaned on for a long time. I'm trying to change that, but collaboration doesn't come naturally. Working alone does. And so I was also hoping to avoid the cubicle scenario that you described. I really identify with that. But my dream of escape was to work on my own or myself by myself, largely. And it's only 10 years later that I'm realizing that it's not enough, that I want to be with more people, that I do want collaborators and I want friends in our community and I want to do more things with people. So I've regretted the times that I just did things kind of toiling away in obscurity and isolation. And, uh, but that's been my bent. So I'm actually like having to fight against that at this point. Yeah. For me, I resonate with a lot of that. Like I, I do enjoy working on my own and like solving a problem and just rolling up my sleeves and going at it. But I have several clients and teams of people that I work with on a daily basis. I manage six or seven different consultants now. And The idea of like an indie Rails developer or just indie Rails project for me is is more about kind of like an independent film is. It's like 
not necessarily a solo person, but just like not big corporate, just a small business that's bootstrapping, building. It's sort of a lifestyle business as well. Like you want to do well in business and you want your product to be great or whatever, but you also want it like serve you and not control your life and just be attached to it in a way that you can't get away from. That's interesting. Yeah. I think about this a lot of, over the years. And one of the things that I feel like when you work for yourself is the sense of identity of when your business isn't feeling super successful, how do you feel as just a human on the planet in terms of are you successful right now? And where do those two lines kind of meet and cross over? Because there's times when like businesses, like it's not, this year has not been great for my business and a lot of peers. And I have to keep reminding myself, like, I'm doing great personally. My band had a really great year. My band went on tour this summer, like all these great things. But I'm like, where's the next big client that we need? And like, I had to lay some people off. And I'm like, am I just horrible at this now? And so like that stuff kind of comes and goes. So I've had to spend a lot of time building up some, it'll still bleed in, right? But it's just like trying to decouple that. It's, it's not possible necessarily, but it's just being mindful of it. And so they, one of the benefits that when I, because I don't work with so much by myself that I've got peers and I've got a business partner, I've got a leadership team, we've got employees and our contractors, is that I'm not in it by myself. And like, we all kind of understand what's going on. Like, so I can take a few days off and be like, I can't fix this problem today. I'm going to step away and like things are, clients are happy. We're making money. We're not growing crazy this year, but that's okay. It's just, but that doesn't mean I'm not successful or the business isn't successful. There's, there's all these different like things playing and, but doesn't mean that there's not times where I'm like, maybe I should get out of this and go work for someone else. And that's not any safer either, but it's just a lot to carry sometimes when you're, when you do this for 21 years, it's a lot of baggage that kind of hangs around. <laughs> exactly. The grass is always greener, right? It's easy to look at the alternative and say, wow, that looks like really attractive. The reason I wanted to ask you both that was just, I was curious if you felt like there was anything in your prior career roles where you felt like you disagreed with how management was done or how projects were approached. And like, I could have done this better. And like, that is a, there's an archetype of a developer like that. That's okay. Maybe you just haven't seen it done well. Like I've never known what a good manager is really like. Because I don't know that I ever really had one. So it's always hard to kind of compare myself to like, who am I comparing myself to? And that's a tricky thing, but I'm curious about that. Yeah, thanks for the question. Robbie, thanks so much for the time today. It's been a really great conversation about your career and about running an agency. Is there anything that you'd like to share with us? Anything that you could leave our audience with? Yeah, I just want to encourage everybody to be good stewards of their software projects for the long term. So whether you're working at a company or for yourself, don't assume that you're going to be the last developers to work on it. Kind of leave things for the next people in a good place and just be mindful of that because Planet Argonne inherits a lot of those projects and they're messy and we can figure it out. And or if you have a project that you'd like to escape because you feel like you're... I know so many freelancers that have reached out to me over the years and be like, I just feel bad. I actually don't like working with this client anymore for whatever reason, or I'm just like stuck on some old price point with them and I can't figure out how to negotiate them. I've loved it, pass them to someone. They need more work than I can give them as a freelancer. Send them to Planet Argon. We'd be happy to chat with them. Or at least use us as like a, a benchmark to like help you negotiate your price point with them and your hourly rates like, because we're expensive, but we're worth it. So just be good stewards of your projects and send them our way. Where can uh, people find you online and any other places you want to send people right now? 
Yeah, you can check out my podcast at maintainable.fm. And I'm Robbie Russell. It's Robbie with a Y. Pretty easy to find. Robbie on Rails. Find Argon. I'm sure you'll have it all in the show notes. Thanks so much, Robbie. This is great. Thank you, Robbie. Thank you both. It's been delightful.